There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Let's be clear. There is no such thing as being too political because the political is personal. The things that happen in policy affect our day-to-day lives. When people say, oh, you're being too political, I think it's actually wrong. And I think it's gaslighting. Welcome back to All The Small Things. This week, I'm chatting to award-winning author, speaker, and professional troublemaker, Lovey Ajayi-Jones. Lovey thrives at the intersection of comedy, media, and justice. She is the author of the New York Times bestseller, I'm Judging You, The Do Better Manual, and she's the co-founder of the global movement, hashtag share the mic now. Her TED Talk, Get Comfortable With Being Uncomfortable, has had over 5 million views. Lovey's new book, The Fear Fighter Manual, Lessons from a Professional Troublemaker, is a hilarious and transformational read about how to tackle fear and step into our lives, careers and legacies that go beyond even our wildest dreams. I feel so honoured to have spent some time with Lovey and I really hope you enjoyed this episode. So here is Lovey Ajayi-Jones on All The Small Things. Okay, so let's start as we always do on this show. I would love to hear about the first thing that you do when you wake up in the morning because, Lovey, I want to get an idea of your kind of morning, someone as productive and someone who has achieved as much as you have. What are you up to when you first wake up? You know, um, I want to be able to say that I like meditate and you know, do all, I don't, I kind of roll out of bed and sometimes I get right to work. Sometimes on a good day, I'll say a prayer, like a two minute prayer. Other times it's basically jump up, get in the shower, get to work. So it just depends on the day. I usually wake up around 8 a.m. You know, a lot of leaders will wake up around like you'll hear 6 a.m., 4 a.m. I'm not that girl. I'm not a morning person like that. 8 a.m. is when I usually will get out of bed. And there are times when I'll stay in bed till 8.30, just scrolling through my phone and trying to see what the day looks like. And are you someone, are you a caffeine kind of person? Do you need caffeine to kickstart your day? Are you a breakfast person? What kind of fuels you? I am neither. I'm actually, I don't drink coffee and uh, I don't eat breakfast until probably 10 o'clock. So usually what I'll do is I'll get some lemon water you know, I'll put it on my desk so I can be sipping on that throughout the day. Um, sometimes I'll make myself some tea, but I'm definitely not caffeine fueled. When you sit down to do your work and to get started with that day, whether that's calls, whether that's writing, whether that's podcasting, is there something that you have found helpful for your focus? Are you someone who does the 25 and 5 method? What are your uh, secrets? I am most effective when I start my day by writing it down my to-do list um, on paper you know, put it on paper, especially with the things that I know I must do that day, if nothing else. The days where I am just, when I get things done, the most are those days where I'm like, okay, I sit down at my desk 
And before I jump into emails or anything, I just take five minutes to write down all the things I have to get done. I'll cross check it with my assistant and then I knock it out. So a lot of times it's also kind of, my calendar is very specific. Like my cal- I have like 12 calendars. Oh my, 12. And the reason why is because, yes, I, yes. Probably, oh, let me see. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, nine. And it's because each thing is color coded. So when I actually take a look at my calendar, even if I'm not reading exactly what it is, I have an idea of what is going to make up most of my day, right? So if it's blue, for example, I know I'm doing a lot of press. If I see a lot of blue, it's a lot of press. If I see a lot of purple, it's a lot of meetings. If I see a lot of red, it's a lot of book-related stuff. So if I see teal, it's my podcast. So I instantly go, okay, understood. Today is a day where I actually have to show up publicly or Today is a day where I'm just talking to my staff. And it's just really helpful for me to kind of get me in the right frame of mind. So if it's a day that's internal where I only see purple on my calendar, then I'm like, well, I don't have to look good today. I can just throw on my sweats because the only people who are going to see me are my team. But if it's a day when I see a lot of blues and, and, and reds, I'm like, all right, let me look like a decent human being. <laughs> so when I show up, I'm showing up correctly. Yes, I love that. Thank you so much for sharing with that with me. Now, uh, this podcast is all about the small things and yes. how they kind of add up to create yes. bigger things. But when you were little, let's have a little, I'd love to have a little kind of grounding of who you are and your your life growing up because something mm-hmm. not so small happened to you when you were nine, right? When you moved from Nigeria to the US. Yes, Tell, yes. tell us about that experience because I'm imagining that, you know, when we're nine, we're quite adaptable and when we're little, we're quite adaptable, but that's a pretty huge thing to happen to a young person. Yeah. Yeah. We're pretty adaptable, but yeah, it was massive culture shock coming from Nigeria to the United States at nine. First of all, Nigeria could not be much more different from the U.S. because it's warm all the time there. The country is full of nothing but black people. It is a different pace. We came to the U.S. in October and we came to Chicago. So I instantly got thrust into winter. Um, I had been to the U.S. before we'd come on vacation, but to live is different. So, yeah, it's a culture shock. You know, my accent was different for the first time. The way my name sounded was different for the first time. But you are right in that kids are super adaptable. Like I lost most of my Nigerian accent by the time I started high school like four years later, you know, I was very much the kid who fit in after about a year. Like you really couldn't tell that I had just come from Nigeria. And I think the power of kids is like our resilience. You know, we, kids are like rubber bands. They always snap back. They always snap back in a way. Adults will still retain their accent. You know, adults will still kind of like keep who they were, but it shifts you a little bit. But I think little me was already established as who she was. You know, like I came already very clear about who I am. Like I've always been the girl who would tell you when she didn't like something that you did. I was always a person who was like, that's not fair. I don't think that's okay. You know, so that I kept that part of me and I kept that core of myself. I'd love to hear a little bit about how you made the initial steps in your career uh, towards facing your fears and dreaming audaciously. Were there any key moments for you? Yes. So my freshman year, my major was psychology pre-med and I thought I was going to be a doctor. So that same semester, I actually ended up getting the first D of my academic career. (laughs) Like, 
Chemistry 101 took me out. First and last day of my academic career. I was like, okay, I guess I'm not a doctor because I don't even like hospitals. So I ended up um, starting my blog and it was really about like my undergrad life and whatever random things 18 year olds think is interesting, which is whatever. And it was in Comic Sans. It was terrible. I'm sure I took myself very seriously in a way I probably shouldn't have. But it really started my love of writing outside the classroom. I kept the blog all through college. And then when I graduated in 2006, I deleted it and started awesomelyloveyou.com, which I still have today. You know, I started talking about less about myself and more about the world as I see it, my thoughts, my opinions about TV, movies, randomness, race, politics, feminism, whatever it was. And the blog took on a life of its own. More and more people started finding it. People were like, oh my God, this blog is making me laugh. Or you're saying the thing I was thinking, but dared not to say. And I think the gift of it all is because I didn't think my blog was such a big deal. I was able to be true out loud without like thinking about strategy, without thinking about you know, who's going to read this? And then what will happen from it? I, I was writing without pretense because I expected nothing of this blog. So when it took off, it was like the great surprise because it's the thing that I really kept doing even when it had no promises. And it was practice. It was practice. But what I was doing, what I didn't realize I was doing was I was building a brand. I was building an audience and I was building a community of people who saw themselves in me, whether it's how they were thinking and whether it is how they were just going through the world. So I reflected their conscience back to them. And then in April, 2010, I got laid off my marketing coordinator job and ultimately never had a chance to work for somebody else. Now I work with other people, but I don't work for anybody else. You talk about really important issues, but the thing that clearly gripped everyone's attention was your writing. And yet you wouldn't call yourself a writer for a really, really long time. Why yeah. Why was that? Yeah, I mean, for me, I think the, the word writer came with so much expectations that I had put on myself. I was like, oh my goodness, a writer is Toni Morrison and a writer is, you know, Maya Angelou. So for me to call myself the same things as those prolific women felt like a title that was too big. So that whole time I would just be like, yeah, I have a blog. I'm a blogger. I finally had to have a come to Jesus moment with myself where I was like, you are a writer. Because I started finding myself in rooms with people who worked at multi-million dollar outlets and who were backed by major cooperations. And I, I was there as awesomely lovey. And I'm like, your words got you in this room, just like it got these other people who call themselves writers. So I had to finally say, I am a writer. And I said it scared. I was like, oh my gosh, this still feels too big, but I'm going to say it. And declaring it was important because it was almost like God, the universe was waiting on me to be like, yes, this is what I am. Because all the things that I was afraid of just kind of fell away. I, you know, I was afraid. I was like, okay, like how do you make a living as a writer when you don't work for the New York Times or when you're not a novelist? And I started getting opportunities to write columns and magazines, like my opinions mattered. I started getting um, brands saying like, we see your audience, it's huge, they listen to you, do this campaign with us. And all those things just fell by the wayside. All my worries, my fears about what it meant to be a writer now felt ridiculous because I'm always like, whoa, I didn't know how I was going to make money, but the money found me because I was using my words and I was standing in my purpose and I was owning 
my gift, which was writing. That's so interesting because I think, like, I know I've been that person who's like, oh, yes, I just have a podcast and, uh, you know, I I enjoy it. When actually, like, it's so true. You have to own what you're saying. So you believe it. And so everyone else around you believes it. And yeah, I just found that really impactful. So thank you. It's definitely something I need to bear in mind as I'm someone who has a tendency of just being like, oh, I do lots of things and owning it is so important. Well, you know, I think part of the reason is because sometimes we take our gifts for granted. You know, we think, oh, I just do this thing. And, oh, it's just this thing that feels easy, right? If it's effortless, sometimes we will doubt it. Sometimes we will discount it because we're like, "Mm, I don't work hard enough at it for me to call myself that thing. And it's, it's why we must understand what gifts mean. Like the things that we have that are effortless for us, that other people have to work really hard at, that for us kind of just happens. And when we do it, it's really good. There are gifts. And the reason why it's a gift is we don't have to have earned it, right? We don't have to have done anything to receive it. What we can do is hone the gift, get better at it. But what we shouldn't do is discount it. So when we stop discounting our gifts, we win because then we are giving it credit. Then we actually are intentional about it. And when you're intentional about it, you are going to see all types of things happen because you're actually putting the energy that it deserves towards it. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Let us talk about your new book, The Fear Fighter Manual, Lessons from a Professional Troublemaker. I absolutely loved it. I found it so funny, so uplifting. Before we dive really deep into it, can you first tell us what is a professional troublemaker? Yes, I think a professional troublemaker is a change agent, a truth teller, somebody who is committed to disrupting the world for the greater good. And I think troublemaking gets a bad rap. (laughs) I think making trouble is to say, I'm going to be the person who makes sure that I'm challenging what is happening in the room that's not okay. And I think professional troublemakers are the savers of the world. They're the ones who make sure that we're better friends, better partners, that we're better bosses because they don't stand for what's not good. So you need professional troublemakers. And for them to exist, they're going to have to do a lot of scary things. So for us to be professional troublemakers, we are going to be fear fighters in the process. Love that. 
Now, in the book, you talk about how we fear our full selves. And if I can be that person who quotes you back to you. Yes. You say, we are afraid of who we are in all our glory and grit. We're constantly searching for that person or forgetting that person or repressing that person Mm. instead of standing strong in who that person is. Why do we do this? And how did you manage to make the change to achieve things beyond your wildest dreams? I think we end up doubting who we are and and not standing in our full totality because the world will abuse it out of us or insult it out of us or tell us or, or judge it out of us, right? We're constantly walking around being told to be different. And even when people are not saying the words be different, how they're reacting to us is that we're somehow not enough or we're somehow too much. So then we end up internalizing it and saying, I have to change this thing about myself. So then we spend our whole lives trying to find our voice or find who we are, but really we've always been there. We just got told that that person wasn't good or that person wasn't enough. And my whole thing is we have to stop doubting ourselves less. It's not about not growing. It's it's not about not critiquing yourself, but it's about knowing what is true to you. What are your core values? What are the things that you hold dear? And then standing in that and not apologizing for it. And for me, that actually allows you to grow and and, and it makes you a little bit more pliable actually, because every time somebody sends something your way, that's a critique. It's less of an indictment about you and you recognize it as really something about them. That's been a huge part of my career. Because part of the reason why people read my work and connect with it so deeply is that they say, I am authentically myself. They say like, wow, you're saying what you were, th- what I was thinking, but I dared not to say because I was afraid of what it would mean and what people will say about me. And the reason why I'm able to say it is because I'm like, what people say about me has nothing to do with me. It's not my business. You know, if me telling the truth somehow makes me abrasive to you, well, then I'm not your person right? Like, don't be my friend. You know, don't hire me. The people who I'm speaking for and speaking to will hear it, will see me and say, got it. That's my person. And I think we need to spend a lot more time deepening our connections with our people than trying to convince those people who don't like us to like us. So true. I'm someone who definitely spends too much time worrying about what others think. And yeah, that is definitely something that's advice that I need to listen to uh, and rehear every single day. Obviously, this past year, we've all been doing a lot of reflection and I've been doing a lot of self-reflection. And as someone who's shared various parts of their life online for quite a long time now, I have, I always look back and I'm like, oh my gosh, like, that person is so not what I'm, what I am now. And I, I definitely count myself as someone who changes a lot. And what I really appreciated about your book is that it kind of made me realize like, yeah, you have changed and that's okay. In fact, that's a really, really good thing. Yes. Yes. Here's the thing is change is not a bad thing. Change is not a bad thing. And honestly, change is necessary. Anybody who has not changed or who does not change on some level is not doing what they should as a human being. We're supposed to change. We're not supposed to be the same person we were five years ago, 10 years ago. Our core might be the same. Our opinions can change. You know, what we prioritize can change. How we see the world and, and see our space in the world can change. How we deal with our boundaries, yes, they should change. 
who we are should not remain the same because that means we have stopped growing. And I think whatever's not growing is truly dying. So here's the thing about change though, is like when we change, people are not going to like it. A lot of times it will run afoul of somebody because in our change, we might have to leave them behind or they might feel less connected to us or have less access to us. But in our world and in our responsibility to ourselves, we should not stop changing and growing just because somebody else might be upset at it. And that's because humans are fickle. You know what I mean? Like there's no way to actually guarantee that somebody will like you or like something you did. If you stop growing, there's still going to be somebody who's like, still don't like them. <laughs> don't like her at all. And I'm just like, you know what? If you're not going to like me, you're not going to like me while I'm being myself as opposed to me trying to make you like me and you still don't. Yeah, that's really freeing. I, I really appreciate that. Um, you mentioned uh, how you are very authentically yourself in an interview with NPR in 2016. I'm going to quote you back to yourself again, lovey. Uh, you said, people love my voice because they say I say what they were thinking but dared not to say because they have a, they have a filter or a job or something like that. Um, why do you think that people are so afraid of judgment and speaking truths? Yeah, because people are afraid of losing community. People are afraid of what happens when they're standing on the island by themselves, right? And usually if you're in the room and you are the troublemaker, that usually means you're going to disagree with something that is happening in that room. If the rest of the room is fine with it and you're like, mm, hey, I don't think this idea is going to go well and I don't think it's as thoughtful as it should be you will be on an island by yourself, which means you're stepping outside of the community. You're stepping outside of the tribe and the like-mindedness, which means you might be isolated. So just on a core level, human, our need to belong makes us want to stick with what everybody else around us is doing. But what that happens and, and, and what keeps me from fighting back against that, that fear of not belonging is that again, like when I walk out of that room, I, I still belong to some people. I can, I still have friends who love me. I still have family who loves me. And the biggest thing is if I'm in a room and I walk out of it, I need to be able to be proud of what happened there. I need to be able to be proud of my work in that room. So let's say something, whenever, uh, whenever a campaign for, from a company goes nuts and gets backlash on social media, it happens a lot. It happens a lot. I'm always like, there was a professional troublemaker in the room who's, who was silenced, who knew this would not go well, who wanted to speak up, and who knew that, you know, what if I spoke up, I might get punished, or who was afraid of standing on the island by themselves. This is why professional troublemakers saved the world. Because imagine if that person had spoken up and said, hey, here's what I see is going to happen that's not going to go well for any of us. Imagine if that person was not afraid of punishment by just speaking a thoughtful truth. Imagine how many times our, our lives would be better if we had more people telling us the truth without fear. If you had a friend who could tell you, hey, red flag about the guy you're dating. I peep this, think this, this. Hey, that job, that boss is, I've, I've heard really bad things about how they treat their people. Like how much better would our lives be if we gave professional troublemakers the permission to be that, to be the truth tellers for us, who watch our blind spots, who make sure that 
we are showing up in the best way possible and saying the best things possible and doing the best work possible. So my whole thing is our fear is valid. Our fear of, of not belonging or fear of punishment or fear of whatever we think the monster is, it's valid. But what we have to do and why I wrote this book is we have to now move past our fear and not let it stop us from doing the things that we must do, the important things. Mm-hmm. You actually talk about uh, that in the book and you say that um, the people in those rooms sometimes don't have the privilege of being able to speak up and say something because it might risk, you know, something really important and they can't they can't kind of run that risk. Yeah, I mean, usually when I'm speaking about this, it's with the clarity that the professional troublemaker in the room, the truth teller in the room, the person who's putting themselves on the line in the room should not be the person who has the least power in the room. It shouldn't be the intern that's like, hey, this idea is not going to go well, right? Because we are often waiting on other people to do this work and marginalized people and people who don't have as much power should not be the ones constantly on the hook to call out what's happening in the world, to say we must change something, to say, you know what, I am going to disrupt this unjust, unjust thing that's happening. That's why people have to recognize their power in any rooms that they're in. And power is dynamic. Power shifts. You know, so whenever I go and I'm speaking at a company, I'm always like the moments when I'm on stage, when I'm doing the keynote, whether I'm virtual or not, I have the most power. I'm the most powerful person in the room because I have the mic. So my job when I have that mic is to say something for somebody who couldn't say it for themselves, is to disrupt the status quo of the company is to make sure that I have them thinking about their culture differently, like company culture. How are people able to show up in this company? How are people be able to, are able to speak up? And then when I'm off, when I hand over the mic and say, thank you, I know that the power that I just had is gone because I no longer have the mic. Same in a room where if I'm the person who called the meeting, I have the power. But in the next meeting where somebody else that's running it, I don't have as much power, but I'm also very clear that while I'm in the room, whether or not I'm running the meeting or not, what is happening on my watch is my responsibility. We are often waiting on everybody else to save the day. We're waiting on Superman to come through and save the day. And I'm like, we all have red capes. So if we stopped seeing the world as everybody else's responsibility, not ours, we all will then feel responsibility for making sure, yeah, if I have an actual literal seat at the table, I need to be the one to make sure that the campaign is actually thoughtful and not divisive and not full of discrimination or not full of messages that will speak ill of somebody else, right? It's not just the person who called the meeting who should be able to be like, oh guys, maybe we should rethink this. If I'm there, it is also my job. So I think the world would be better. Everybody would sleep better if we knew that we had given each other permission to watch each other's back, to tell each other the truth thoughtfully, to make sure that we are showing up as good as possible. We'd all sleep better because I would know, I'm like, whoo, I don't have to be the one constantly doing it. 
I think that's going to resonate with so many of my listeners. Um, I'd like to talk about your domino analogy from your 2017 TED talk, because I just think it's fantastic. Yes. You describe it as speaking up and doing the things which are really difficult, especially when they're needed with the hope that others will follow suit. Now, this past year, it's been more important than ever to use our voices for change. Um, especially, you know, social media has been such an important form of activism. And you write about speaking up for the greater good in your new book. Can you speak more on that? How can people push to do this more in their lives? Yeah, being the domino looks like taking action first and then hoping somebody else takes similar action right behind you. It's the idea that you can't have dominoes fall without one falling first. And in the rooms that we're in, you know, when we are sitting there and listening to ideas and, you know, talking to our friends, whatever it is, we got to choose to be the domino. We got to choose to take the risk of being on the island by ourselves. But here's the thing is oftentimes we won't end up on the island by ourselves. Somebody else will say, yeah, you're right. I'm so glad you said that. I also feel the same way, but we're always waiting for the first domino. We're always waiting for that first person to say something and then we might back them up. Why wait? Why not you be the first domino? Why not you be the person to speak up first? Why not you challenge it without waiting on somebody else? So again, it goes down to us taking the action and not waiting all the time for somebody else to take the action. Our action is just as important. Love that. And in the book, you also talk about um, our kind of individual influence and how the way we speak and the things we push for don't necessarily aren't necessarily for just the people that we can't see the strangers behind our screens but they can they're also it's also really important to think about our kin our community our family our loved ones and i am definitely someone who finds it easier to talk about uh, things like social justice and environmental justice to strangers on the internet than i do with some of the people closest to me, friends, family, who perhaps don't have the same beliefs as I do. And I will sometimes prioritize speaking to all of those kind of faceless people than I will the people closest to me. What would you say to people Mm -hmm. who are worried about being too political or not wanting to push for that necessary change and have those deep, important conversations with those closest to them because they fear being judged and being different? Yeah, I think a lot of people do that where it's easier for us to talk on the big mic than the small mic. It's easier for us to speak on social media than in the rooms we're in. And here's the thing that I deeply believe. We have to start working on making impact in our realm of impact first, our 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 platforms. And when we talk about platforms, people are thinking, you know, LinkedIn, Facebook, Instagram. No, I think our platforms are the people closest to us. Humans listen to people they know first before they'll listen to any stranger. You know, you're more likely to listen to your best friend than you are to listen to the person you just met on the street. With that in mind, we have to know that whatever we're saying on social media, it can be cute. But if we're not saying it in the rooms we're in, what is the actual impact we're making? We might be talking to 300,000 people on social media, but if we're not talking to the 20 friends we know or our coworkers or our family members, 
how are we actually making impact on everybody's life? And I think it's because we're thinking impact has to be on a grand scale. You're thinking it needs to be when we write checks for $50,000 to a nonprofit or, you know, we speak to 300,000 people. Impact is in the small day-to-day things. It's in the small day-to-day conversations. It's in shifting hearts and minds of the people we know in real life. So before we can shift external minds, we need to talk to the people who we can touch. And that is actually more important work than the work on social. And that's why for me, I always want to be who I am in public that I am in private. Even when I, when nobody is watching, I am this person because I can't, I can't write this book or say I'm this person and then not have tough conversations with those I love. Like, you know, talking to my husband, talking to my friends, talking to my team, people who are right there, who can ask me questions. It's really important for us to find that courage because again, the whole fear of not belonging. We're afraid of being the one person in the family who was too political. And let's be clear, there is no such thing as being too political because the political is personal. The things that happen in policy affect our day-to-day lives. The fact that people who were gay and lesbian could not marry somebody they love was a policy. And that was a personal, it had personal um, impact in people's lives. So when people say, oh, you're being too political, I think it's actually wrong. And I think it's gaslighting because how are you too political when the things that are happening in politics literally affect how you can live, who you can love, right? How, what level of poverty you might be living in, you know, whether or not you are considered a full being, your full humanity being recognized. So I actually want people to stop saying that about somebody else's passion because politics is personal and we've been tricked into thinking somehow being political is being a troublemaker. But here's the thing though, we actually need to be troublemakers. We need to be political. We need to actually understand what it means when a law is passed and how it affects not just us, our neighbors, our family members, our friends, the people we might never see. So all of that is tied together. And I think until we really start finding the courage, we won't really make the impact that we want. We won't see the world grow and change because I think the reason why everything's a dumpster fire is because too many people are sitting in their fears. Too many people are allowing it to allow to, to keep them silent, to keep them inactive. And it's not doing anybody any favors. So we have to start talking. And the thing about courage is you cannot have courage without fear. So understand that it's okay to be afraid, but we need you to choose courage in these moments. I'm just like (laughs) applauding silently. That was just so amazing. Thank you. Um, Quickly, I just want to mention how much I loved all of the things that you said about boundaries on in your book. Absolutely loved it. Particularly, lovey, uh, the part about hugging. (laughs) For anyone who's not a hugger, read lovey's book because you will really relate. Lovey, tell me about hugging and tell me about how you deal with not being a hugger with strangers who really, really, really admire you and want to hug you. Yes. I love to hug the people who I know, right? I have no problem hugging the people who I know, but I don't like hugging strangers. I think there's something really personal about the fact that we are bringing our bodies together. And if I don't know your name, For me, it's an invasion of my boundaries in my personal space. And, you know, people will see me in the streets before COVID. 
and be like, oh my God, I'm so excited to meet you. And like, will pull me into a hug by default. And there are times when I'm afraid of hurting their feelings. And I'll be like, ah, fine. I'll just like give them the hug. But there are other times when I'll say, hey, I'm actually not a hugger. Nice to meet you though. You know, one day I posted on Twitter, I said, what is a very polite way to let somebody know that you don't want to hug them? And a lot of people reply back to me and say, just tell them you have a cold or, oh, just hold something in your hand. So I was like, so I got to lie. I have to tell somebody I am sick before I can tell them about a boundary I have. That's weird to me. Why can't we just tell somebody, hey, I don't like to hug strangers? Oh, because you know, that'll hurt their feelings. It might make you feel, it might make them think you're cold. And I'm just like, that's wild. We can't even honor ourselves. And we're being told it's better to lie to somebody about our boundary than to speak the truth about it and let them deal with whatever emotions they have around it. I was like, no, I put it in the book. Cause I also am like, anybody who reads my book now knows <laughs> anybody who reads my book, me. don't hug me if you don't know me, man. Like let's be friends first. And then we can hug. Like if we meet and we talk for an hour at that point, great. I can hug you to say goodbye. But the first time I'm meeting, if I don't even know your name, it's weird to me. <laughs> I love that. Put it in the book and then it is all sorted. I absolutely love that. Um, yeah. How would you feel about doing a quick fire round? Let's do it. Quick fire with lovey. Breakfast, lunch or dinner? Dinner. Tea or coffee? Tea. Kombucha or hugs with strangers? Oh, God. Neither. I just... <laughs> That's a good, Jesus. Oh, neither. But fine, maybe kombucha because it's a momentary discomfort. In the city or by the sea? Ooh, now during, after being in quarantine for, for a year, I want by the sea. <laughs> Wedges or stilettos? Wedges. Trainers or brogues? Ooh, that's good. I'm a brogues girl. I, I'm both. I, I love brogues but I also have a massive collection of sneakers. So oh, yeah. I, I should have said sneakers, though. sorry. I should have said oh, no, sneakers. Oh, no, no. I know trainers. Look, I know it's trainers. I know the Commonwealth language, but <laughs> I'll say brogues. Yeah. Air Maxes or Jordans? Ooh, that's good. You've done your I've research. Been through, I've been through your shoe account, lovey. You've been, my shoe, you, you've been through my shoe account. Oh, that's good. Damn. Okay, okay, okay. Uh, Jordans. Uh, Instagram or Twitter? Instagram. Film or TV? TV. Podcasts or books? Books. Feel the fear or fight the fear? Ooh, fight the fear. Routine or spontaneity? Routine. And finally, early night or night owl? Night owl. Interesting. Okay, a couple of yeah. questions to round up I love the show. Um, when you are suffering a lockdown-induced existential crisis, maybe you don't suffer with those, but maybe that's just a personal thing. Everybody has suffered with it, yeah. What lifts your soul? Great music. I have some playlists on Spotify that I've created that lift my spirit. Uh, one is an Afrobeats playlist with some of my favorite... Af it has... 21 hours of music, I believe. Um, another is my gospel playlist. Amazing. So I listen to music and I dance by myself because I really enjoy my own company. And it puts me back in a great frame of mind where I feel grateful for all the things that are around. So music is a mood lifter. Completely agree. I love that. 
What is your one non-negotiable daily self-care habit? This can be something very small. Moisturizer. Yes, you wrote about this. I must always, my face must always be moisturized. It is something that even if I, on that day, I might look like a bum, but there is moist, there is moisturizer on my face and I am glistening. Yes. Love that. What one small thing would you like our listeners to try out or think about? Mm, honestly, try some shea butter. <laughs> shea butter. I'm telling you, like people ask me all the time, like, oh my God, your skin is so nice. I'm like, look, moisturize your face every day. It is a game changer. I'm telling you, it just makes you feel good to like slather it on. And then you just know that even if you're feeling terrible, at least your face is glowing. Oh, the other thing I actually think everybody should try if they haven't tried it yet. Another secret to glowing skin is a vitamin C serum. Ooh. Have you ever tried one? I've not tried a vitamin C serum. Tell me more. Let me tell you. So vitamin C serums, serums are for under your moisturizer, right? So you wash your face. You put on a serum and then you put on your moisturizer. I use a serum every day. Serums are like super concentrated. So what they do is like a moisturizer on steroids, depending on whatever it is that you need. So my favorite serums are vitamin C serums because vitamin C, because the citrus, it brightens your skin. So it looks like you're glowing, even though you don't have on makeup. I don't have on makeup today, by the way. I just wow, have on lipstick. I just have on lipstick. That's it. So get a vitamin C serum. Use it under your moisturizer, and I'm telling you, your skin will sing. I've gotten so many of my followers send me DMs to be like, I am officially obsessed for because I've gotten a vitamin C serum. I have a whole skincare page with all my um, recommendations, so... I can link it in the show yeah. notes. Thank you. That That's absolutely dreamy that's a wonderful answer and finally final question for the show what is one small thing you hope your future self will have achieved honestly I hope and my mission and why I wrote this book I want future me to be really proud because she has gotten a million people to commit to fighting their fears a million people to commit to being professional troublemakers because I just wonder how amazing the world would be if a million people decided to be the domino, ask for the raise, you know, apply for that job, have that tough conversation with a friend, have that crazy dream and actually put it to action. So yeah, I, I want, I want in five years, future me to be like, oh my gosh, we actually got a million people to be bigger than they ever thought they could be, to be doper than they ever thought they could be to dream as big and be as scared as they could be but they still charge forward amazing lovely thank you so much thank you for writing this incredible book thank you for your time thank you for your moisturizer tips i'm so <laughs> grateful for you thank you so much thank you so much for sharing space with me i definitely never take it for granted when people want to share air with me so thank you so much venetia Thank you for listening to this conversation. As always, you can check out the episode notes for links to my guests. And if you enjoyed the show, please do share it with a friend or on your Instagram stories, tagging me at Venetia Lamanna and at ATST Podcast. And I will see you back here next week for a brand new episode. Bye-bye. Imagine 
the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.